two Boeing 747 aircraft collide on a runway in the Canary Islands. In this part, listen to the story behind this horrible disaster as we approach its 43rd anniversary. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have a guest today. Hi, I'm Jen. Hi, Jen! Jen used to be my boss, and then she just became my best friend, and then I quit. <laughs> she did not get fired. <laughs> she did not fire me. I would like to quantify Let's that. Clarify. You probably wouldn't be here if you did. Uh, probably still would be here. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, she's a cool person, so. Yeah. Yeah, I'd try. <laughs> so are you. What? What? So we're covering a biggin, the biggin, biggin of the biggins. Yeah. Today, uh, and actually, we're doing this in two parts because there's so much information that trying to stuff it into one episode it just wouldn't work. So you are and going to be left on a cliffhanger. This is me forewarning you. It is logistically, it is not I don't, perfect. I don't know if it's a cliffhanger. Eh, not really. I mean, it, it's it'll be like, pretty clear what happened. Yeah, but. It, it's just we can't get to the. The investigation and stuff until next week. And the deepness that is. So today is going to be storytelling. That's okay. You can be on the cliffhanger with me. So. (laughs) (laughs) And we are doing it a little bit differently this week. I'm like actually doing stuff this week. Yeah. And this one, we should also say, this is kind of the whole reason that you guys even know anything about aviation or decided to participate in this podcast at all is because you guys watched the episode on this. Most likely. Yeah, I know that you did. I showed yeah. you the episode on this, and that's how everything started. Mm-hmm. And then you described it to me, and then I watched it, and then I watched three seasons. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is I'm next. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, and I it's already, just a matter of time. I already captured you. You already used the term crew resource management in your work life. Well, it's it's an apt term for a manager. Yes. Especially in my tiny department. But I'm playing this video game recently that does use pan and the other term that I can't remember because I'm nervous. Tilt? What's, tilt. No, it's the one that pitch. nobody... Pitch. That's it. Pitch. And I'm like, I know this pitch because roll, of y'all. the hard landings podcast. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Okay. So this week we are cover, or this week and next week, we are covering the Tenerife disaster. Ooh. Ooh. We can't give you a flight number because you'll two. see in a second. Yeah. <laughs> This was the deadliest aviation accident in history. It still is. It is. Yep. Yeah. Nothing else has given more. Surpassed it. Yeah. So you in for a heavy one. Oh, get ready. So this was an accident. Wow. That occurred (laughs) on March 27th, 1977. There were two 747s involved, and I'm just doing the crew portion, so... First off, the KLM crew. KLM is a Dutch airline, by the way. Uh, the captain was Jakob Louis Van Zenten. Is that right? Van Zenten, yep. Yeah. We are not Dutch. We apologize. Yeah, it, it was rough. Um, It doesn't give me his exact age, just his birth date. Um, And I I can try to do quick math real quick. But I like... have a calculator. Oh, wait. Hold on. Do mental math. So, actually, he was 50 years old. Just kidding. That was really easy math. Okay. <laughs> I looked at it and went, I feel dumb. It's fine. Okay. But you're not. He was 50 years old. 
And he had a bunch of licenses and type ratings, like DC-3, the Convair CV-240-230, the Lockheed 749 and 1049, DC-5, a DC-10C, Viscount 803, DC-9, and the Boeing 747. So he had a bunch of different type ratings. A bunch of aviators just took a trip down, wow, that's old, lane. (laughs) Because yeah. those, a lot of those airplanes are very old now. Yes, he was also the star of KLM. Yes, he was like he was like on their brochures and he in was a training, training pilot. Yeah. yeah, he was in their training manuals, all this, that, and the other. So his flying experience, he had eleven thousand seven hundred total hours and one thousand five hundred forty nine hours on the seven forty seven. To the co-pilot, the co-pilot was. I'm just reading what it says, by the way. Klaus. 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 There's no U. It's Dutch. Klaus. Muers? Murs. Murs. Yes, Klaus Murs. Gosh. Sorry. Dutch. Friends. Dutch. And he was... He was 42. He had ratings on the Fokker F-27. F-O-K-K-E-R. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Jen's trying so hard. I actually know that. I'm like the worst, like, most immature person with words. (laughs) It's okay. Beechcraft D-1-B-S, I think. Oh, that's a, that is not a new airplane at all. No. Jen's really struggling. eight. It's either an eight or a three. So to be fair, this uh, report was scanned in from an old typewriter thing. I have a type one. Do you have it's a typed rough. one? And then the Boeing 747. We'll talk about it. Okay. I guess they have the typed version I found, too. It's on okay. the do Spanish you, um, website. Do you guys yeah. post the, the... Yes. We have links to the reports. On the Patreon Always. or just for... On our website. No, on the on website. website. That's awesome. So for everyone? Yeah. Yes. Perfect. So if you ever want to go look at these when we say they're hard to read, I'm not kidding. They're hard to read. They yeah, are. Yeah, because I'm, I'm kind of looking over her shoulder and it's... They're, they're it's a world rough. of fun. It's, it's harsh. It's... Uh, when, when you, get, when you get later in the report, it gets better. But the first couple pages, like this one, is just, it's hard to read. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and regardless, I mean, they're like, they're hundreds of pages long usually, and they are ridiculous. Yes. So his total flying time was 9,200 hours, and he had 80, nope, 95 hours in the 747. Okay, so he was new to the 47, but man, he had some hours. Yes, he did. And then the flight engineer... William, Wilhelm, William, William, I think it's William Schroeder. I think it's Schroeder. Best guess. Yep. That'll work. Yeah. I don't know. And actually. he was older than the captain. Oh. It was DC-8 in case you were wondering. Was... Not DC-3. Okay. I said DC-8. Or DC-3. You said or both. DC-3. Because I couldn't DC-8. tell. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then uh, they put this all weird. So you would know this, Nick. When they put dates in europe do they put the year first no it is date month year yeah okay they do it in smallest to largest so he was 57 that's not okay 54 he was 54 54 again i'm doing quick math because they can't just put what age they are they just have to put their date of birth anyway he had type ratings on the dc3 the dc6 the dc7c the dc8 and the boeing 747 he had a total of 17,031 flying hours and 543 hours on the 747 a lot of hours moving on to the pan am crew because the other 
747 in this crash was the Pan Am flight. The captain was Victor Grubbs. He was almost 57. Wow. Okay. If if it would have been like a, two months later, he would have been 57. So hmm. he was 56. All right. He had a total of 21,043 hours. Whoa, that's a lot. And 564 hours on the Boeing 747. The co-pilot on the Pan Am flight was Robert Bragg. I think he's still alive. He, he passed away in 2017. Okay. Because yeah. he, when we watched the air disasters and when I watched the century yeah. of whatever, crash the crash of, of the, the century. century, he was still alive um, and was mm-hmm. interviewed. interviewing for it. Anyway, so he was 39. He had 10,800 total flying hours. 2,796 of them were on the Boeing 747. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot. Flight engineer was George Worms. I think it's Worms. Or it's Warns. Worms or Warns. He was 46. He had 15,210 total flying hours and 559 on the Boeing 747. He's a pretty good amount of time, too. So that's all for crew information. Excellent. So both flights were on their way to the Canary Islands from... um, So the KLM flight, I don't know where they came from. Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Oh, you're right. That's right. Because they had to go back to Amsterdam. So they came from Amsterdam. It was KLM 4805. Pan Am was coming from New York. Actually. Well, they were coming from Los Angeles. They had to stop over in New York. Then they went to the Canary Islands. But technically, they came from New York because they landed to refuel in New York. And everyone was on board from L.A., so it was a really long flight. They were on for a long, long time. And that was Pan Am 1736. Yep. Okay. So both of these flights were flying to Las Palmas. Um, So that airport is the Grand Canaria Airport, a.k.a. Gando Airport, a.k.a. Las Palmas, a.k.a. their destination. (laughs) At that airport... Something treacherous was afoot. An individual representing the Movement for the Independence and Autonomy of the Canaries Archipelago. Say that ten times fast. A.K.A. M.P.A.I.A.C. Say that ten times fast. Leave me alone. (laughs) He planted a bomb in a florist shop in the airport terminal. He then called in to the authorities, warning them, giving them 10 to 15 minutes notice. Reports vary as to how long that was. But he said, this is going to happen. Get as many people out as possible. Also, there might be a second one. Bye. That's not exactly what he said, but, you know. Authorities evacuated as many people as they could before the bomb went off, but eight people were still injured, and one of them was the florist, who was seriously injured. Because of this incident, Las Palmas Airport was closed indefinitely, diverting all incoming flights to Los Rodeos Airport in Tenerife, including the two 747s, much to their dismay. So, those two 747s, like we said, were both special flights, not normally scheduled. One was a charter flight. Uh, The Pan Am was a charter flight. That was chartering passengers from Los Angeles on to the Canary Islands for a 10-day cruise, leaving out of Las Palmas. The other one, the KLM, was just taking vacationers from Holland to the Canary Islands just to enjoy some beach time. Both of them are not regularly scheduled flights. They were special flights for tourists. Most of the passengers on the Pan Am flight were retirees because they were going on a cruise, and they had a tour guide with them. Hey, now, just because they're old doesn't mean... (laughs) (laughs) Cruises don't mean retiree. No, but let's be honest. This probably cost a lot of money. Yeah, it's retiree salary. And I know that I wouldn't have that kind of money. (laughs) That's for sure. No way. So both airplanes were directed to land at the Los Rodeos Airport in Tenerife. 
The Pan Am ad re- the Pan Am flight had requested that they would hold for two hours because they had enough fuel. However, they were denied that request and asked to land anyways. So both airplanes landed, but the ramps were crowded with airplanes because they had all diverted there. Every airplane that was going to Gran Canaria had been diverted to Los Rodeos. And they were handling more airplanes than they ever had before. Also, that airport is a one-runway, one-taxiway airport. It is not very big at all. No, so they ended up having to put planes parked on the taxiway. So, leading into my part, when the airport opened back up in... Las Palmas. Las Palmas. The Tenerife ATC had to have planes go take the runway, turn around... And take off. Right. So they, they taxied or they actually drove? They, so they taxied up okay. the runway, turned around, and then took off on that runway. And so all of the of, planes were doing this. Yes. Is it a backward kind of flight pattern then for them? Like Normally normal? you taxi up to the runway at, at the head of the runway and then you just take off. But uh, because there was no taxiway available, I should have put diagrams. This I have is, diagrams I can show you. It's okay. This is known as backtracking. Yes, okay. so it says that in the thing, it. yes. Yes, this is known as backtracking It's in called backtracking, and actually I do say that in my part at some point. So oh, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. I continue. That's okay. I have lots more. Okay, so the KLM flight arrived first. Yeah, KLM flight arrived first, and they were forced to park near one end of the runway on a taxiway. The Pan Am flight arrived second and had to park next to, slash, behind the KLM, and both were behind several other airplanes in the way of the runway that had also been grounded. The KLM requested to air traffic control that they allow their passengers to disembark and take time to stretch in the terminal, since they were going to be there for a while. This took up all of the space in the terminal, leaving no room for the Pan Am passengers when they arrived to go into the terminal. To be fair, there were other planes there that had other passengers there in the were. terminal. It was not just the KLM passengers. Right. Just want to clarify that. All of this is really interesting because they just simply wouldn't do this nowadays, because they can't. Yeah. International laws. How many people were on board the KLM flight, Nick? So, and the KLM flight was the private one that wasn't a commercial? The Pan Am was the one that was charter. The KLM was the one that was commercial. Okay. So, but (laughs) as you will find out, and I put in my notes, the KLM captain is a dick. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He is. He, like, down talks his crew, and I was watching this documentary, and I was like, holy, wow, this guy's a dick. So, I... I would like to say I think the documentaries um, dramatized a bit, sensationalized. It probably I'm sure is, it was, but regardless, he was kind of a jerk. Yeah, I yeah, mean, hands down, he's like next time. So the charter I don't flight, he was this. a jerk. Yeah. No, the okay. other one. Oh, the, other the op- one. okay, the commercial, the commercial one. Wow, the Dutch one. Okay, the one who's the star of his airline. Okay. Yeah. So Nick, how many people were aboard the KLM flight? There were 249 people on board the KLM, of which there were 14 crew. For the Pan Am, just so you know, there were 396 people on board, of which 16 were crew. If these numbers are wrong, we're sorry. This was confusing. This was confusing. We literally had to look up three different sets of numbers. <laughs> and you didn't have to listen to it, so you're welcome. So that is how many people landed at Tenerife. That is how many people landed at Tenerife. That is correct. That is how many people were on these planes when they landed. And there were a lot of people in the terminal. There were a lot of people in the terminal. That Pan Am flight, however, the passengers were allowed to go outside and stretch their legs a little. They did put air stairs and open a door, and they let people go outside and stretch, but they weren't allowed to go into the terminal. They also didn't have food. Nope, they also didn't have any they food. They ran out of food. Yeah, they, they only had one meal for the flight. They didn't have anything left. No drinks, no food, nothing. Did they have water? 
Nope. Nope. They didn't have anything. Wow. One interviewee specifically said, I feel a little peckish. You Can I get a coffee and biscuits? And the flight attendant was like, no. We don't have anything. So that one mom who brought like a backpack full of snacks was, was like a really popular one. <laughs> she probably hid it from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There's no moms on this flight. This is a vacation for retirees. Yeah. There probably were still, you know. Probably. People. But anyways. So as the airport at Gando was reopened, the passengers in the terminal were informed that they could prepare to reboard their airplanes. All the passengers on the Pan Am flight took their seats again and prepared to depart. As the KLM passengers had to reboard, the crew decided to take the time to refuel the airplane. The captain made the decision, which was questioned by the other crew members, as it would take time, and fuel at Gando was significantly cheaper than it was where they were, in Tenerife. However, he negated either one of those options. They, they did not uh, persuade him. He said he would feel a lot more comfortable to get fuel there in Tenerife, because he believed that it would take far more time to get fuel in Gando because all these airplanes were going to go to Gando as well and they would all require fuel. So they would end up having to wait for fuel there and they would run out of crew time, duty time, thanks to KLM who had just adjusted their duty times for pilots and made it far more difficult for them. So they were all worried about timing out because it's called you, in aviation. If you go over that time, you could lose your license. Yep. That, that's what they changed it to. You go over time, you lose your license. Yep. So you can't fly anymore. And they had adjusted the times down slightly. Was that a new thing at that point? That was new. Very new for them. Probably because of another incident that we will cover one day. Probably. The Pan Am crew was ready to depart when air traffic control gave them the news that, they, that the KLM had just chosen to refuel. But Which, by the way, KLM decided, the KLM captain decided to take on 55 tons of fuel. That is important I, later. Yeah. This, this whole decision to refuel is a very important decision. It is. That caused problems. Yep. We also so, won't discuss those problems until next week, so make a post-it. Put a pin in that. So um, I am telling the story from the ATC's version of everything, which is kind of short and sweet and um, kind of horrible. So <laughs> I like it. It was a Sunday at the Los Rodeos airport. There are usually only two controllers, which means they were extremely understaffed at the airport for the amount of traffic that was there. And the ATC controllers have to take the takeoffs slowly when the uh, Las Palmas airport opens because they needed to make sure everybody was getting back on their planes. And so they could, like I said before, taxi down the runway, turn around and take off. The controllers try to move quickly so the weather does not close the airport because the weather was slowly starting to get worse and worse. Apparently in Tenerife, they're known for weather changing really fast. So fog was starting to come in and it was starting to get darker. And so the controllers really, really tried to make sure that they didn't have any big delays. However, with the KLM refueling, it caused a lot of backup because the Pan Am couldn't take off and any of the planes that were parked behind the KLM also couldn't take off. Yeah, the Pan Am flight tried to get around the KLM jet, but was 12 feet short of being able to do so. Yeah, I have that point. Um, they actually started up, inched forward trying to get by the KLM, then stopped, got out, and they went and paced the distance they had and it was 12 feet of overlap between the two airplanes. They literally went out, two of the crew members walked the distance. They literally paced foot for foot how far they had of overlap with the KLM, and they 
it was 12 feet worth of distance they couldn't get by. Just that much. Just that much. The wow. two wings were, were 12 feet worth of distance. If they had been 12 feet further over, they would have been fine. So they had to wait, and as long as, like I said, a lot of other planes who were parked behind the KLM had to wait to taxi. Due to the incoming fog, it was hard for controllers to see the runway. So after the KLM was done refueling, refueling excuse me, they told them to start up as well as the Pan Am flight. And they were told to go to the end of the runway, backtrack to the end of the runway, turn around, and wait for instructions. And then the Pan Am was then given instructions to follow the KLM to backtrack down the runway. Then take exit 3C, third to their left, to exit off the runway so that they could taxi around the KLM and take off after them. So both 747s were traveling down the runway, and the fog was starting to get worse and worse and worse. And so the KLM captain asks ATC if there's any center, li- center line lighting to help see the runway. And it was not working. Of course. This ticked off the KLM captain pretty bad, too. Mm. As far as I could tell from the documentary we watched. Like we said, it was probably a little bit dramatized, but... Traumatized? <laughs> traumatized. <laughs> well, now they're traumatized. That's different. <laughs> English is hard. So they were... Going down the runway, ATC asks KLM how many exits they have passed. And they tell ATC that they have passed Charlie 4, which is the last exit on the runway before you get to the end of the runway to turn around. So ATC tells them to turn around when they get to the end of the runway and hold for instructions. The Pan Am is asked how if they are off the runway yet. The, they are confused about where they need to get off the runway. The Pan Am is asked where they are and if they have the runway clear. And they say, how many exits are we supposed to exit off of? (laughs) And ATC goes, third to your left. Three, one, two, three, third to your left. The issue was Charlie 3, as you can see from that diagram, is basically impossible for a 747 to turn that angle. For one. For two, it's identical to Charlie 2. Yes. In shape. And so they couldn't figure out quite where they were supposed to get off. So they decide to go to Charlie 4. Which is logical based on this diagram. Yes, because it's at a 45 degree angle and it's easier for the 47 to get off the runway. Rather than a, what would it be? And then, yes. And then 135 degrees? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, again, like, impossible for a 747. Basically. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. And so the controllers ask Pan Am 1736 to report when runway clear. Now, keep in mind, these controllers are Spanish speakers trying to speak aviation English. Which they are trained to do. Yep. Yes, but they do have accents. So it was hard for the Pan Am, who are American English speakers to understand the English speaking from the controllers. On top of the KLM pilots being Dutch, which is even harder to understand. The other issue is the controllers cannot see either jumbo jet because of the fog. They're rolling down the runway, they can't see either jet, and there's no radar, ground radar in Tenerife. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. So they literally, what they usually do is they sit in the tower and look out with binoculars, but they couldn't see with the binoculars. So they were just hoping and praying that both 747s 
were listening to each other, listening to the controllers. And wow. Yes. So, uh, so basically, they were working blind. They asked Pan Am seventeen thirty six to report their position, and it sounds like they're lost. Like they don't know where to get off the runway. So they tell them there they will exit. They will tell them when they're clear of the runway. The KLM tries to. Uh, they get to the end of the runway. They make the one eighty. Okay. So they ask ATC for clearance. And really, all the ATC gives them is the clearance on the path they take after they take off. And then it's basically like, after takeoff, this is where you're supposed to go. It's Dude. called a departure procedure. Yes. It was, it had the word takeoff in it, which I believe kind of just hyped up the crew a little bit because they, they were ready to crew. leave. Well, they, they were really ready for go. that. They were, they were waiting for that word and they probably just zeroed in on it. For that, and then also, they were all, on the KLM flight, they're all freaking out if they're going to go over hours or not, because they still have to make it all the way back to Amsterdam after they leave Las Palmas. And so, after that, they tell them, the KLM tells the air, air traffic controllers, we are at takeoff. The air controller goes, hold for takeoff, wait for takeoff clearance. And then... Says, I will call you, or something like yes, that. Yes, I will call you. However, the Pan Am also heard we are at takeoff, and said... We are not off the runway yet. Please don't do that. <laughs> and they sound at the same time. So Pan Am believes that the KLM has heard that they are still on the runway. Okay. The controller assumes the KLM knows that they do not have clearance to take off yet. So after ATC trying to call both planes several times over the next five or so minutes, they have no idea that there's an accident because the fog is so thick. The controllers had to hear it from an aircraft in the air that there was an accident. There was, like, a, a person who was flying above the airport in a holding pattern that was like, um, you have a fireball on the middle of your runway. And the controllers literally freak out. Because they, they, like I said, they can't hear, they can't see anything. So, after 20 minutes, ATC calls rescue to help with any of the accident that they cannot see that happened on the runway. 20 minutes of knowing or 20 minutes no, after of no they contact. didn't know. Yeah, they kept okay. calling 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 so the planes. 20 minutes they, of them being like, "Oh my gosh, you're not answering me." Yeah, no one's answering. They were hoping that both planes had just taken off without clearance. That was not the case. Well, that's good on the people, the controllers for not knowing anything and they're like, "Well, we're just going to get rescue out there." Anyway, we don't know. Yeah, but well, they minutes. heard from a plane above that there was a fireball after okay, twenty so minutes. Oh, so it was after that. Okay. Yeah. So after the twenty minutes, they're like, "You have a fireball in the middle of your runway," and they were like, "Well, okay." And they call fire and rescue to oh, help. Okay. So now for the Pan Am flight's point of view. So backing all the way up. Backing up. Beep beep beep. Um. So I do want to say the there is a cruise late liaison on the Pan Am flight that reassured the passengers on board that if they got stuck in Tenerife, that the cruise ship would come and get them. Mm -hmm. So the passengers knew like, okay, we're stuck on a plane, but worse comes to worse, the cruise will still come get us. We're fine. However, they were overjoyed when they heard over the intercom, the Pan Am crew say, hey, we were given ability to take off. We'll be at Las Palmas in 25 minutes. They received clearance from ATC to start up their engines and begin taxiing after KLM was given the same permission to do so. So as they were taxiing to do their backtrack, as Miranda had spoke of, they were taxiing pretty slowly because of the fog. That speed came to about 9 miles per hour or 15 kilometers per hour. 
accommodating everyone and weird measurement systems. <laughs> and then the fog rolled in heavily. First Officer Braggs, in interviews later, described watching the fog bank along the right hill come in and stop on the runway. Because, of course, where else would it? And this limited visibility to what ATC said was 500 meters. They completely lost sight of the KLM-747, which was 1,000 meters away. Braggs was unfamiliar with the airport and was referring to his airport charts as he listened to the instructions the tower was giving to the KLM flight. During this time, he radioed into the tower and said, We were instructed to contact you and also to taxi down the runway. Is that correct? To which the tower said, Affirmative. Taxi into the runway and uh, leave the runway third. Third to your left. Braggs confirmed. Third to your left. Third to the left. Okay. But the flight engineer said he thought he heard first... And so did the captain. So now there's this whole dispute. They discussed this briefly, and the first officer said he would check back with the tower. In the meantime, they were really struggling to find any exit. Part of this is that the cockpit of a 747 is on the second floor, which I don't know if we discussed earlier. The 747 is a two-decker plane. With four engines. So there It's a big plane. Big were, plane. I think there were 28 people on the upper deck, and that is also where the cockpit is which means that it's some 30 feet off the ground, making it really hard to see through the, fro- through the fog. It is one of the highest cockpits in aviation. So it is, it is an interesting airport airplane to navigate because you sit up so high. The captain actually said he didn't think they had takeoff minimums, which is the aviation term for the minimum visibility needed to take off. I was going to ask about the, the minimum visibility law. Yeah, we get into it. But they proceeded anyway. <laughs> As you would. Uh, The crew resumes trying to figure out how many taxi exits they had passed. They knew they passed the first one since that one was a 90 degree turn. But the second and third exits were both 45 degrees in a very tight turn configuration and looked identical. So the first officer called into ATC. Would you confirm that you want the Clipper 1736 to turn left at the third intersection? To which ATC said, the third one, sir. One, two, three. Third. Third one. That is exactly what he said. And Braggs responded, very good, thank you. In the background, the captain and flight engineer were conversing. One, two, that's what we need, right? The third one. Uno, dos, tres. Uno, dos, tres. Trace. Uh, si. Right. We'll make it yet. Tower then called in. Uh, seven, one, three, six. Report leaving the runway. Which was the wrong flight number. To which the first officer responded, Clipper, one, seven, three, six. It's hard to tell if he was correcting ATC or acknowledging that, that he heard what he said since ATC got the number wrong. Then they proceeded to do some checklist stuff, which I don't really feel the need to go through at the moment. Tower then reported to both flights that the center line lighting was out of service, and they both acknowledged that. The captain says to his colleagues that if there's no center line lighting, they need 800 meters of visibility, which he read earlier. They then start getting confused about which exit to take. So they don't have the visibility needed to take off, and they're doing it anyway. Basically, if they had been smart and not done it, this whole thing could have been averted. So this is that point in life where you stand up and you're like, am I going to do it or am I not? And just have a bad day. Yeah. Let's have a bad day, yeah, folks. Yeah, that's pretty much what's happening. Let's just have a bad day. Yeah, bad day is Let's happening. Let's just not do it. Yeah. <laughs> the tower is now reading off instructions to KLM of what to do after takeoff, to which their captain responds and acknowledges, saying we're now at takeoff, as Miranda said. Yep. Tower says, okay. Pan Am says, no. Uh, Tower says, stand by for takeoff. I will call you. First officer Braggs radios in saying, and we're still taxiing down the runway. 
Clipper 1736. Tower responds saying, Roger, Alpha 1736, report when runway clear. Bragg says, okay, we'll report when we're clear. They continue taxiing when the first officer sees lights through the fog. Landing lights. <laughs> there is a plane moving rapidly towards them. Captain Grubb sees it and says, there he is. Look at him. God damn, that son of a bitch is coming. As first officer yells, get off, get off, get off. The captain throws forward his throttles and turns the plane, aiming to exit where he was supposed to kind of at Charlie 4. When interviewed for the Air Disasters episode, First Officer Bragg said he saw them lift and could see the rotating beacon underneath. And he ducked and said a real quick prayer, God, I hope he misses us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, we're back. Okay, so starting all over again for a third time. So like we said, the Pan Am crew was ready to depart. And ATC had told them that the the bad news that KLM was refueling. So they had done the whole try to see if they get by. They couldn't 12 feet, this, that, or the other. Didn't work. Well, in the meantime, as KLM was finishing their refueling, one of the stewardess entered the cockpit and informed the, the captain that uh, many of the cabin crew were getting worried about duty times. And they also informed him that there were still four passengers unaccounted for. The captain aggressively berated the stewardess telling her to find those four missing passengers, or they will lose their jobs because of duty time problems if they had to wait any longer. He also threatened to leave them behind, against the company policy. So the four passengers were found in the terminal. They were still in the terminal because it was a family of four, and the two kids had run off while playing in the terminal. The airport worker that found the family immediately rushed them back to the airplane. What the crew were unaware of was that there was a fifth passenger missing when the airplane was preparing to leave. There were three tour guides on their way back from Holland after attending a seminar about doing tour guiding things. They were getting trained. They were getting trained, yeah. While stopped off at Tenerife, one of the three had opted to stay behind to be with her boyfriend. Because all three of them lived in Tenerife anyway. Right. She had originally planned to fly to Gran Canaria with her friends and co-workers, then take a flight to Tenerife, as they all had, the next day so that she could be with her boyfriend. But because they had been diverted there anyways, it seemed silly to go to get back on the plane just to then catch a separate flight back to the same place. So my thing is, they have the manifest, right? Why was she not counted in the people not on the plane? So we're guessing that her friends probably told them, oh yeah, she's here, she's in the bathroom. Oh, okay. Something like that, to the point that she got counted even though she was not on board. Yep. Okay. She tried to persuade the KLM worker at the airport at the counter inside the terminal, to let her stay there, but they told her it was against the company policy and she had to take the flight. She agreed, pretended to head back to the plane with her friends, but stayed instead. She was the sole survivor of the KLM flight. Okay, now this is why I'm always gonna lie and just stay. (laughs) This is the one time where going against company policy and what turns out to be international law saved her life. I think part of it was her gut. I think part of it was like, oh, why should I get back on that plane? There's no reason for it. You know, back well, her, up, her back, other, up, back up. Her other friend 
Walter. Walter, that was with her, her co-worker that was with her, one of the two, had a bad feeling. The second they got off the plane, they were on the air stairs, and he looked at all the planes that were sitting on the taxiway, and he said, I have a bad feeling about this. He said, there's there's so much wrong here, how could it, how could it go right? And he still got back on the plane. Yep. I think part of it was literally just her gut going, you know what, my boyfriend's here anyway, I live here, I'm not getting back on And he plane. had tried to persuade her, as a matter of fact, to get on the plane as well. Yeah. He had said, you know, oh, well, we were going to go get drinks tonight. And, paint the town and red. And paint the town red and have oh, fun. God. To which he said, well, you know, what she said, you know, we're, well, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to stay. My and boyfriend's so, here, he's on his way. It's ironic, though. He offered to bring her bags back, since her bags were still going to go to Las Palmas. So he said, I'll bring your bags back. Don't worry. Just spend time with Paul. It'll be fine. Yep. Wow. So both airplanes began to start their engines, prepare to taxi out. Just before they began taxiing, air traffic control had reported that the visibility had reduced to 500 meters. They were still pushing ahead with clearing airplanes to depart, but the airport's charts displayed on the rear side that the minimum operating visibility at the airport was 700 meters. 800 if the center lights were out. Yep. Which they were. The tower controllers were operating blind on this day with a fog. So... Diving deep into the KLM portion as they taxi, the airplane began to taxi. Air traffic control had given them instructions to backtrack down the runway, as we had described, go down the runway, do the 180, the other end, and then wait for ATC clearance. As they taxied down the runway, the visibility was decreasing rapidly. Air traffic control called at 5.02 and 49, 5.02 p.m. and 49 seconds. KLM 4805, how many taxiways uh, did you pass? KLM responded at 4.02.55. I think we just passed Charlie 4 now. By this point, the Pan Am had now entered the runway behind them, and were also backtracking. So Charlie 4 is all the way at the far end, near where they were going to do the 180 now. So this is all the way at the far end where the KLM is. Air traffic control responded at 502.59. Okay, at the end of the runway, make a 180 and report uh, ready uh, for ATC clearance. That's actually how it reads. The uhs are actually there. All the uhs I said were there. Yep. A couple of minutes later, at 5.04 p.m. and 58 seconds, air traffic control said... KLM 8705, wrong number, by the way, and Clipper 1736, for your information, the centerline lighting is out of service. Yep, we knew that. <laughs> and this was news to them. Both planes acknowledged this. The KLM reached the end of the runway and completed the 180-degree turn. It was lined up with the runway centerline and was now facing the Pan Am, though they could not see each other through the fog. The captain of the KLM then began to advance the throttles but was corrected by the first officer saying that they did not have their clearance, to which the captain responded that he knew that, and he brought the throttles back to idle. I knew that. Yep. Don't tell me what to do. I knew that. There's a little sass in that response, you know? Yeah, exactly. (sighs) He's twitching. I'm the pilot. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think at one point he explicitly said, I'm the captain. Yeah, that is what he said. Yeah. A king doesn't have to say they're a king. That's what he said when they were refueling. Yeah, when they were refueling and they tried to argue against him saying, well, why don't we just do it in Las Palmas instead of here? Because fuel is expensive here and we just want to get on the road. And he's he's like, well, no, I'm the captain. This is my decision. We're refueling here. It's an ego problem. Yep. It's no. a huge ego problem, especially since he was the face of KLM. Mm-hmm. He thinks that he's the best of the best and he can do no wrong. And that was part of the issue here. Karma. Karma, karma. Yep. So at 5.05 and 44 seconds, KLM said to air traffic control, uh, KLM 4805 or 4805 is now ready to take off, uh, and we're waiting for ATC clearance. To which ATC responded at 5.05 and 53 seconds, KLM 8705, wrong number again. Uh, 
You are clear to the Papa Beacon. Climb to and maintain flight level nine or zero. Right turn after takeoff. Proceed with heading zero four zero until intercepting the three two five radial from Las Palmas VOR. So all of that's nice jargony. What that really means is they were cleared to a a point on what would be just a, a point out in space. Basically, they're saying the Papa Beacon. It's actually really it's a point on the ground, but it tells them fly to this point up to what is flight level 9 or 0, which is 9,000 feet, and then make your right turn after takeoff. This is not clearance to actually take off. Okay, right. yeah, that was going to This is ask. the but he part says, that I talked about where it says this is where you can go after you take off, right. but that was not actual clearance to okay. take right. off. He said, Learn to the, he said uh, you're clear to the, the Papa Beacon, climb to and maintain flight level 9-0, right turn after takeoff. Proceed with heading 040. So that little bit right there, he goes, okay, take off. KLM responded at 506 and 9 seconds. Uh, Roger, sir, we're cleared to the Papa Beacon. Flight level 9 or 0. Right turn out 040 until intercepting the 325. And we're now at takeoff. The captain said at 506 and 13 seconds, we're going. He advanced the throttles to take off power. As they began to accelerate down the runway at 5.06 and 19 seconds to 5.06 and 23 seconds, a loud shrill noise is heard over the radio by the KLM crew. At 5.06 and 25 seconds, the KLM crew hears ATC over the radio say, Roger, uh, 1736, report when runway clear. And a reply at 5.06 and 29 seconds, okay, we'll report when we're clear. At 5.06 and 32 seconds, the flight engineer asks the captain, is he not clear then? The captain replies at 5.06 and 34 seconds, what do you say? The flight engineer replies immediately, is he not clear that Pan American? The captain replies at 5.06 and 35 seconds nicely, oh yes. That's it. At 5.06 and 44 seconds, the captain pulls back on the stick of the 747 aggressively to try to lift the airplane off the ground, striking and dragging the tail. At 5.06 and 47 seconds, the crew screams. And at 5.06 and 50 seconds, the CVR ends. Wow. And that is where we leave you today. That is all we have on the lead up. If anybody has stress, feel free to find me. (laughs) We'll have coffee and be stressed until next week together. (laughs) I will say, um, we did say this was the deadliest aviation accident in history. I'm sure you can guess what happened by now. 583 people died. Everyone on the KLM flight died, and there were 61 survivors on the Pan Am flight. Yep, there including was, both the pilots and the flight engineer. There was technically one survivor of the KLM flight, and that's because she stayed behind. Her gut, I'm telling you, always follow your gut. Well, you know. it might have been her gut, or it could have been like the tacos she had earlier. <laughs> and by the way, she is married to that boyfriend, and still is. Yep. Wow. Yep. Did they get married on the runway? No. no. Probably not. <laughs> It'll forever be too soon for I that. I think joke. she's. Yeah. Wow. No, there's no way she could have seen it from the terminal. No. They couldn't no. even see it. Nope. From the they tower. couldn't see it. Foggy, you know. Yeah. Couldn't see anything. I don't know if anybody saw it except for the person circling. And they, they didn't even see it. They didn't see it happen. They just saw a fireball. Yeah. They saw like a red glow from underneath the so fog and they were to like, be honest there no is visual footage so if you want to know there is only one person who could have even possibly seen the accident happen and he was in a building where he couldn't see it because he was the weather station manager and oh, the weather oh, station yeah. was immediately next to where the accident happened but he was inside so he didn't see it happen 
this is like the weirdest, creepiest thing you could think of because like it's literally an accident. It was one of the deadliest ones. Nobody saw it. Right. No, nope. No one could see it. Nobody of how dense saw the fog. It. It just was. happened. And it took twenty and minutes for. After. And it took yeah. twenty minutes for emergency crews to be called. I got goose goosebumps. Cam. It is literally a a worse nightmare. Wow. So uh, one thing I didn't say about my portion, but they were actually working against procedures because of how many flights were parked on the taxiway. Yeah. They actually were not allowed to actually let any of those flights take off after the fog rolled in at all like they weren't supposed to let them right despite them the center taxi. light being out no matter even if the center light was good yeah they yeah would have been there like was no, still there below minimums because they couldn't see any of the airliners the airliners couldn't see each other and really they shouldn't have even let both airliners go down the runway at the same time nope. they were supposed to do even they weren't even supposed to let them go down the runway but because they did that they should have waited to have the Pan Am go till after the KLM took off. Well, and a lot of the the people, a lot of the crew members were still like, well, we're not going to go anywhere. Like on the Pan Am and on other airplanes in the area were like, well, this is obviously not going to get us anywhere because there's bad weather. <laughs> so, and you might cut this part out, but if, if the new company policy wasn't in effect, there probably wouldn't have been as much pressure to leave on time they wouldn't have or to rush their departure yeah they wouldn't have rushed it as big that is part of it yes Yes. but i'm pretty sure that procedure stayed in effect the reason being is fatigue and fatigue is deadly well Well, but this is also deadly well and well yes the thing is is that procedure would have only gotten more strict as a matter of fact it was one stop over 10 hours but because they had stopped somewhere and now we're going to stop somewhere else they stopped in tenerife and they got diverted Yes, there are now two stopovers, which limits that time further to nine hours. And they needed to get to Amsterdam, which yeah. would have been really close. Well, and they had to land at Las Palmas first and let everyone off first, and then they take off again. They wouldn't have made it to Amsterdam in time. No. They would have. That's what he was pushing so hard for. Yeah. Now, if they change the policy to where the flight employee isn't at fault, but their company, and they wouldn't lose their whole job over it, Maybe it wouldn't be as pressurized to lie and, about your fatigue. And that's possible. However, the it's re- still on the pilot. The reality yeah. is it's still on the pilot to make the decision. And if they didn't have enough crew time to make it back to, He's to the Amsterdam. He had to stay. Yeah. What they needed to say was, we can't go. This diversion caused us to lose no time. No matter how They probably could have landed in Las Palmas, and then they probably would have had to stay there. And to be honest, it would have And have been another fine. crew come pick up the plane. Especially because, vacation. Especially because this wasn't a regularly scheduled route. A lot of times there's pressure because the plane has to be somewhere. Yeah. Right. Which, this wasn't a regularly scheduled flight. So he probably didn't need to be anywhere after returning to Amsterdam. And the thing is... This is personal. Right. Well, and if they had to stay in Las Palmas, even if they thought they were going to get reprimanded for it... They wouldn't have because Mm-mm. there was a diversion they couldn't control. He fo- he would have had followed the rules, but he didn't. He would have been patted on the back. Eventually, Probably. Yeah. And now he can't be. Right. Because uh, he's dead. Yeah. So And he's responsible for a lot of... And people yeah. died. <laughs> and people died. <laughs> See? It now, comes up again. <laughs> now, we're not going to say yet who's at fault because we haven't gotten to the investigation. And if you want to get into that, check back next week. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Oh, show. I'll be ready to to make next week's more angry. 
dramatic. <laughs> it'll be it'll be something. I'll wear my mad pants. Your mad pants? I thought you were wearing pajamas. Yeah. Are those your mad pants? Your mad yeah, pajamas. Yeah, so I can move around. <laughs> <laughs> I can make sure to be mean and like kick people. Okay. We'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Oh man. Okay. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.